going to um, look into to God's Word. Let's read God's Word together, or I'll read God's Word, follow along with me. So, church, hear the words, uh, the inerrant words of the living God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, and indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, is all, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Well, last week we began the book of Colossians, and uh, we teach through a book at a time. We generally go Old Testament, New Testament. So we just finished the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week we encountered or began the book of Colossians, and we considered some... uh, uh, some of the big themes uh, that were in the book of Colossians. So what we did was we took kind of a 20,000 or a 30,000 foot view of the book of Colossians and, and we looked to see if we could see some of the contours of this amazing book. What were the high points um, uh, of the book? And, and we encountered a number of the big themes that were addressed in the letter and, and perhaps... Um, the two biggest themes that, that we looked at, Christ is certainly the main theme, especially of the first half of the book of Colossians. It is, um, Colossians may be one of the, uh, reveals Christ as supreme, as overall, as un, uncomparable. And in the book of Colossians, Paul paints a picture of Christ that is probably unmatched um, anywhere else in Scripture. It is a, a picture of Christ above all, supreme. But we also saw then that um, in, in the book of Colossians that not only is Christ supreme, but we saw how to live. One of the big themes was how does one now live in light of the fact of Christ being supreme and being over above all, being indescribable, being incomparable. How do we as an individual, how do we as a church now live in light of the fact that Christ is incomparable? So we could say what we saw is the supremacy of Christ and then the submission to Christ. Christ is supreme, therefore we aren't. And so we should live in such a way that is submitted to his supremacy, to his rule. We saw a couple other things. We saw, we talked briefly about the church. We're going to spend a, a, a lot of time as we go through the book on that. But we also looked at the gospel. The gospel being a, a major, one of the high points of the book of Colossians. So again, focus was given to the supremacy of Christ, um, which bears the fruit of submission to Christ. After we looked at the, looked at the book of Colossians from a kind of a 20,000 uh, foot view and just saw the general contours, we dove down and we looked very 
closely at the first two verses. This was an introduction, if you will. It was a greeting that Paul wrote. As, as you and I would probably write a letter, we would say, from you know, me to you. And that's pretty much what it was. Paul, from Paul and Timothy to the, the, the church at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So we saw the greeting, who wrote it, and who received it. So that's where, we, where, where we've been. That's where we were last week in our introduction to this book. Uh, where we want to go today, um, my target for, for today is uh, to let you all know that those introductory remarks are going to continue. The introduction begins with a greeting. We saw that last week. It begins with a greeting. It continues with a thanksgiving. That's what we're going to see this week. And then it follows up with a prayer. We'll study the prayer next week. And then that is followed by the body of the letter. So the introduction. Last week was the, was the, the greeting. This week is the thanksgiving. Next week will be the prayer. And then um, after that, we will look at the body of the text, or the body of the letter. So today, one of our primary focuses is going to be on that of the gospel. The gospel, I believe, is central to this passage of text. And many uh, people that I read and people who are way smarter than me and um, way more experienced, um, many will put Thanksgiving as the big theme. And, and I think that is a big theme, no doubt about it. Um, and, but, but it seems to me, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I held fast, I'm holding fast to the fact that the gospel is the theme of this text. The gospel then has resulted in fruitfulness among the Colossians, and that fruitfulness has resulted in thanksgiving. So thanksgiving is the fruit of the gospel being successful and bearing fruit. Thankfulness is the result of the gospel doing what the gospel does. Paul sees what the gospel has done, how it's borne fruit, how it's been powerful, and he gives thanks for that. So thanksgiving is certainly a big theme, but at the heart of these few verses is the good news of Jesus Christ. So we'll, we'll spend some time dealing uh, with that. So uh, faithfulness, we could say faithfulness of the gospel has produced thankfulness in Paul and Timothy. Faithfulness of the, the faithfulness, or I'm sorry, the fruitfulness of the gospel. The fruitfulness of the gospel has produced thanksgiving in Paul and Timothy. So that's where we've been. That's where I hope to go today, so I guess let's go. This Thanksgiving begins with Paul saying, We always give thanks. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray to you. Paul begins with a thanksgiving. He begins with a thanksgiving that the gospel is bearing fruit with the Colossians. We thank God when we pray for you. I do want to just point you to something we'll talk about next week. Look at verse 9. And so from the day that we have heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. So we are, we give thanks to God when we pray for you. Oh, and by the way, we never cease to pray for you. 
When we pray for you, we are thankful. Paul's continual thanks arises because he recalls in prayer how the believers have experienced the grace of God. I do want us, just for this passage of terror, for this small section, I do want us to make note of the connection between thankfulness and prayer. Deficiency in thankfulness is a plague that we encounter as believers today. Not, or I could just say it this way, not being thankful is a problem. It's not a new problem. What did God, often, often God judged the Israelites as they were crossing through the wilderness. What did he um, ha- take issue with? Oftentimes it was because you are not thankful. So here we begin to see a, this connection. I want us to point out this connection between thankfulness and prayer. Now perhaps when you are feeling slighted or unappreciated, when you have the false impression that somehow you, you, have, you are entitled in some way, perhaps that is God calling you to be thankful. A call to prayer for the, and in this case, a call to prayer for the good of others. Paul is not just thankful in a generic sense. He is thankful um, uh, for what God has done. He has seen the benefit of what God has done in the Colossians, and it results in prayer, and the prayer then prompts him to be thankful to God. Now, thankfulness implies the receipt of some good. Generally, we are thankful when we receive something good. If you made brownies today, I will probably thank you. We usually give thanks for, for something that is a benefit, some good. The good here that Paul is thankful for, what is good here is that the gospel has borne fruit in the Colossians and it has resulted in their faith in Christ. Paul is thankful for a good. The good is that the, that the gospel has borne fruit in Colossae and people in Colossae have come to Christ in faith. The good, then, is that the gospel has borne fruit in Colossians. Paul is thankful. What is Paul thankful for? We're thankful for you, the Colossians, who are um, the recipients of God's mercy given through the gospel. He is thankful for the love of the saints which stems from their future hope that is secure. So Paul is, think about this, Paul is in prison. And yet he is the recipient of God's goodness. And what is the goodness that he has received? The goodness that he has received is that he has heard of the fruit borne by the gospel in the Colossians. And so I guess one thing that we would probably want to ask, maybe a question we could ask is, when was the last time that you were thankful for another person's blessing. When was the last time that you were thankful because another person was blessed? 
they got that promotion at work. Lord, I'm going to pray that they are faithful with that promotion and I am thankful that they are rejoicing today, that my brothers and my sisters are are rejoicing in the fact that God has met their needs by giving them that promotion. Or um, we could probably think of a number of different uh, areas where we see somebody else receive a good, a benefit, a blessing. And that prompts us to prayer and it prompts us to give thanks for our brothers and sisters. Oftentimes we're so so grumbling, we're like our brother or our sister receives that, that promotion or advancement at work and then we say, well, how come I didn't get something like that? How come God must not love me? He's, he's not giving me what he gave so and so. Paul's in prison and he is giving thanks for the good that has been bestowed upon another group of people. So, Just a quick summary. Paul is saying, when we pray for you, that is without ceasing, thankfulness results. When we pray for you, the result for us is thankfulness. Because Paul's focus is external, that is, it is beyond himself and his circumstances, he can be thankful that others have been blessed. Joy from hearing of God's favor for others. So church... Let us not forget the connection between prayer and thankfulness. So we thank God always. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul continues on speaking about the faith that they have in Christ. Today many people have faith. People will tell you, I'm a person of faith. Of course, the question then is faith in what? Or perhaps faith is viewed as a component of a balanced life. In other words, well, you know, I eat well and I exercise. I spend time with my family. I have a strong faith and I help the disadvantaged. It is just one element, one component of a so-called balanced life. But again, faith in what? Perhaps the stars or the universe. Or perhaps faith in faith. But here we should recognize that faith has no inherent value. It must have a solid object. Faith in the universe, the universe to do what? Faith has no inherent value. It must have a solid object. And here, we thank God always, the God of our Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. There's the object. He didn't say because we heard of your faith. We heard of your faith in a solid object, Christ Jesus. Perhaps we should define faith. Make sure we define faith. And I've the traditional way that I have defined faith is one that is a definition I've had probably since my earliest days of being a believer. I remember, gosh, I hadn't been a believer very long and somebody had given me this really cool book. Um, it was called Strong's Concordance. And I looked up faith and it's like, well, what does that mean? And the thing that stuck with me is 
that the definition given was to trust in, to rely on, and to cling to. And that's just something I have stuck with, to believe, to have faith, is to trust in, in this case Christ, to rely on, in this case Christ, and to cling to Christ. I read, I read another good definition just this week, and it's going to rival that one. And that is to place one's full weight upon. I like that idea. It's a good picture. To lean one's full weight upon. Just reminded me, maybe this is a... Uh, so, to lean one's full weight on Christ, upon His person and upon His work. I lean entirely upon the person and work of Christ my Lord. Uh, perhaps an illustration, forgive me, maybe this is a silly illustration, but I'll give it anyways. Um, I, I think of myself when I sit in a hammock, especially, say, a hammock that I put up. Pull on the ropes a little bit and make sure they're secure, and then I'm going to kind of sit on the edge just a little bit. Is it holding me up? And then I'll scoot myself back a little bit. And only after I'm satisfied that this thing is somewhat secure do I lay out and rest completely. Perhaps that is the idea of leaning one's full weight upon. It is not testing Christ. It is not seeing if He's secure. Oh, I've tested Him often. It is leaning completely and fully and totally upon Him. That when He says, this is what I would have you to do, I'm saying then that is what is best for my life. I believe I will lean entirely upon Christ. I'm pleased that Nelson read from the first chapter of Ephesians today, we did not coordinate this, but Ephesians chapter 1 is perhaps maybe one of the great places where we see this idea of faith in Christ. It is leaning one's entire being upon the person and work of Christ. That in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you believe that? Do you lean entirely on the fact that in the heavenly place God has given you every spiritual blessing? That in Him we are chosen before the foundation of the world to be blameless before Him. That in Him we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Church, do you rely, do you lean completely all your weight on the fact that Christ has purchased your pardon and that your sins are forgiven. I rest with my entire weight upon that. I trust in it. I cling to it. I rely upon it. In Him, Paul goes on and says, we have an eternal inheritance that this life is not all that there is, that I have an eternal life with God my Father. And I am leaning completely upon that. That in Christ we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The guarantee of our inheritance. And so, Paul is thankful because he heard that they rely upon, cling to, trust in, lean entirely upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is more than just a cognitive belief. 
We often say that in James, James would say that demons believe and they, they at least shudder. If you simply acknowledge and recognize um, and co- have a, a cognitive recognition that there was a guy by the name of Jesus Christ a long time ago and he died on the cross, well, that's one thing. Demons believe that. Will you lean completely upon him to forgive you of your sins? And when he says, do this or don't do that, I will lean completely upon that because I know that those commands are for my good and for my blessing. Even when I don't really want to. And when I fail to do or not do the things he's commanded, will I rely and lean all of my weight upon his forgiving grace that he will forgive me of my rebellion against him? Will I lean completely upon that? We thank God always since we heard that you lean entirely upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. The false teachers in Colossae would have discouraged this kind of commitment. Works-based religions deny such sufficiency and advocate that some weight is to be given to human achievement or human merit. Christ is good. Christ may even be great, but he, does, he will not support your full weight of trust. You must do something else. You can lean 75, 95, 99% upon Him, but your meritorious deeds are necessary to receive all of the promises of Christ. And this is what Paul is going to be dealing with. He's going to be dealing with false teachers who say that Christ is good. Christ is awesome. We love Jesus Christ, but you need to bear some of the weight yourself. Paul denies that as we do. Paul not only is thankful for their faith in Christ, he is faithful um, or he is thankful for the love that the Colossians have for all the saints. Love of the saints. Here, what we're seeing is that faith is vertical. Faith in Christ, it is vertical, and love is horizontal. Love to the saints. Faith in Christ, love to the saints. Kind of reminds me of a number of passages of text. It certainly reminds me of the Ten Commandments, which the first four are vertical, and then the rest are horizontal. How we treat, how we live out our love of God, and then we live that out towards one another because God alone is God. I don't steal from my neighbor. I don't covet my neighbor's stuff. I don't kill him. So here we see faith preceding love. The vertical is prior to the horizontal. And yet one without the other is deficient. Faith in Christ without love for the saints is empty. Love for the saints without faith in Christ is foolish. So here the faith in God is verified by love for others, especially believers. And you will note that it is love for all the saints. Yes, all the saints. So maybe look around the church. Yep, all of them. Even the weird ones. Because every church has weird ones. 
If you don't know who the weird one is, perhaps then that's you. The love that flows from faith is not limited to social ranking. It is not limited to race or national identity or education or economic standing. It is a love for even the unlovable. It is a love that Christ had for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The false teachers were saying, and we'll get into this as we go through the book of Colossians, the false teachers are saying that the fruit of faith is ecstatic experiences or visions or receiving some secret revelation direct from God. Paul is saying no love of the saints is demonstration of the gospel in your lives. Love is to be willing to give of ourselves to another. It is more than a feeling. And let me just say, as you all know, Love is difficult. It is difficult to love one another. And even as a church body, sometimes we don't always get along real well with, with one another or we have something against one another. And we still love one another. We forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. So Paul says, we always give thanks since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of the saints. And then he goes on, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This triad of faith, hope, and love are common with Paul. Perhaps one of the most uh, significant places we see this triad is in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, where Paul writes, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest is love. We see this triad of faith, hope, and love in the, the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Here we see faith, hope, and love. They are common with, with Paul, but here hope is the ground from which faith and love spring. Note the word because. We always thank God when we hear, when we pray for you because we heard of your faith in Christ, your love for all of the saints because. Why do you have faith in Christ and love for the brethren? Because of this hope that is laid up for you. Here, hope is the ground from which the faith and love spring. It is, hope then is an eager anticipation. It is an expectation. Faith and love flow from a confident expectation of the future. And, and, and hope just a, maybe a, a simple illustration of, of hope. Hope isn't some, I don't know, vague aspect or element. Hope is something that is certain. Maybe, a good, maybe, maybe an illustration. I don't know if it's a good illustration, but I'll give it. A father tells his son, Next Saturday, son, we're going fishing. And the son, realizing that his father is a good father and keeps his word, is certain that next Saturday we're going fishing. He knows he's expecting to go fishing. Throughout the week, he's figuring out, I wonder what kind of bait I'm going to use and I wonder about uh, what size, what weight of line I should use and what... Where are we going and what should I wear and all of these things. He's, he's 
hoping. It is hope, but it is not like it's not going to happen. It is a certainty. He is not surprised when his father comes into his room at three in the morning to get him up because we need to get on the road to go fishing. He says, of course, I'm getting up. We're going fishing. You said last week we're going fishing. We are going fishing. This has been his hope. And this hope, Paul says, is because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. We have something laid up, a hope that is laid up for us in heaven. This reminds me of a, an amazing passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, that talks about... Um, just real quickly, this hope laid up for you, uh, maybe a good word that we could um, describe. I think laid up is, is the right is the right understanding of that of that word, but you could also use the word reserved. Reserved would be a fair, maybe not quite as accurate, but 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 a good alternative for the hope that is reserved for you in heaven. First Peter chapter one verses three through five. Peter writes this: Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This promise of eternal life, Peter is saying, is secure. It is kept in heaven. It cannot be stolen. It will not fade. It cannot be tainted. It is protected by God. Oh, and by the way, and God sustains you in your faith so that you will receive what He has promised and reserved for you. So Paul is saying, we're thanking God all the time because of the love that you have for the saints and the faith that you have in Christ because your eternal hope is secured and reserved for you in heaven. Church, we have much to ground us, this is, can ground us well in our understanding of what Christ has done for us. This hope laid up for you in heaven. The New Testament church was one that is heavenly minded. I know some people will say, oh yeah, you can't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Well, perhaps that's true. The early church was not so heavenly minded, they were of no earthly good. They were heavenly minded and therefore were of earthly good. Their hope was fixed not upon this decaying temporal realm, but upon that which is eternal and for which they have a reservation by God Himself. This is not, this hope in heaven is not some sort of escapist mentality, but it is a mindset that understood the temporary nature of this present world. They understood we are ambassadors. This is not our home. An ambassador is not somebody, or, or an ambassador is one who lives in a country other than their home country, and they represent, their, they, they represent a different country. They represent a different king. We are ambassadors. We are ambassadors of another realm. That realm is the eternal life secured for us by God with Him in eternity. 
and we are ambassadors. We have a different king. The governor is not our king. The Supreme Court is not our king. The president is not our king. NATO is not our king. The EU, whatever. Put it out there. Not our king. We represent somebody else. That doesn't mean that there aren't loyalties or uh, responsibilities that we have in this temporal realm. But Jesus was the one who said, this earth is, this king, my kingdom is of another place. My kingdom is not here. He is our king. His kingdom was not here on this earth. And so, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19 We read this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most pitied. Church, our hope is laid up. It is reserved for us by God through Christ in heaven. And that is where we fix our hope. And so, we thank God since we heard of your faith in Christ and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for, for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The word of truth. The gospel is the word of truth. The hope that is reserved in heaven has been made known to the Colossians in the gospel. The gospel here is called the word of truth. Likewise, it's called the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1.13. The gospel, good, that is good news, is more than just another idea among many. And I will say this, church, if the gospel is true, then we are subject to that truth. If you say, I believe the gospel, then we are subject to that truth. Maybe like gravity, right? We can deny its existence, but we cannot shake it. We can, we can overcome the effects of gravity, we do so in an airplane, or if I had a jetpack, that would be really cool. I could overcome the effects of gravity. But once, but at some point, gravity will rule and I will be subject to it. You can deny and try to resist the good news that Jesus Christ came and died for our sins. You can resist that all you want, but one day, one day, we will all be subject to the truth, to the gospel. We can deny the gospel, but ultimately we are beholden to it. And here's the thing, because it's the word of truth, it's reliable. We can count on it. Paul says, this is the word of truth. We can count on it. I also want you to note the universality of the gospel. That is, the gospel is not cultural. Of, the, of this, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. The gospel is not cultural. The early church had spread from Jerusalem to Syria to Turkey to northern Africa to India to China. The gospel spread beyond the borders of the Roman Empire because it is true, the truth, it is true regardless of location. It is true everywhere. You cannot escape the realm of where the gospel truth is true.
then the gospel bears fruit. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and it is increasing. The gospel does something. The good news does something. It, it, it's true regardless of, of, of location, but it actually transforms people. It transforms communities. It transformed communities like Colossae. It will transform communities like Pine and Strawberry and Payson. It will transform your workplace, your family. The gospel is true regardless of location. It bears fruit. That is, the gospel does something. Paul says in Romans that it is the power of God unto salvation. That it is the gospel then that saves. It is the power of God to to salvation. Nothing else. Not like the false teachers in Colossae are going to be teaching. Not asceticism or philosophy or secret knowledge or dietary laws or family or etc. Those things are not... um, Those things do not produce the type of change that we will see in the gospel. And then finally, it increases. So I guess maybe here we should probably um, make sure that we're all on the same page in regards to what is the gospel. It's one of those Christian terms that we throw out and we assume everybody um, understands what what we're talking about. But I would hazard to guess if I say the word gospel and ask every single one of you after church, what is the gospel? I don't know how many are here today, 40 let's just say 40. If I asked every single one of you, what is the gospel? I would probably get 46 different answers. Well, what is the gospel? We are fairly firm on, on what the gospel is here and we try to describe it the same way every time we talk about it. First of all, as we talk about the gospel, we need to realize church. You can ignore everything that I've said up till now and in about two minutes you can ignore everything I say after this. But you need to pay attention right now. So wake up, wake your neighbor up. Um, Online, I don't know, whatever you do online. There is a God and that God created everything. He created every bird and every snowflake and every tree and every, every everything. He created you. You are his creation. You were created by him and for him. So when we talk about God, we are not just talking about some, some idea or some man in the sky or some distant being. We are talking about the God who made everything. And because he made you and because he made me, we are accountable to that God. He has the right to rule our lives. We are his creation. He is our creator. He has the right to say this is the right way to live. But as a result, but that being true, we have all rebelled against this God. He has said do this and we said no. He said, love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we said, ah, I love myself more than you. We have said, no. You can eat of every tree in the garden, the fruit of every tree in the garden, but of the one tree you cannot eat. Oh, I'm eating of that tree. Even though you own me, 
and have the right to tell me what I should do and not do. I'm going to do what I want to do anyways. We call this sin. It is rebellion against the holy God. And the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. And here's the thing. Every single person, every one of you, me included, I'll jump down. We have all sinned against God. We have all rebelled. We've shaken our fists and said, I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what you say. The bad news of all this is that the Bible also tells us that the wages of sin is death. And I think this is referring to not only temporal death, that is, we're all going to die one day, but eternal death. We will live in eternity absent the presence of the favorable presence of God Almighty. Call that hell. There is a God, and you and I have rebelled against him. None of you, none of you, you've stolen something, you've lied, you've cheated, you've lusted, you've done something that God has not prescribed. And the wages of sin is death. And you're probably thinking, I thought you, the gospel was good news. All I'm hearing is bad news. Well, let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God has provided a remedy, and that remedy is the person of Jesus Christ who bore our sins in his body on the tree. Remember when I said that we have all sinned? Yeah, the good news is that Jesus has borne our sin in his body on the tree. That is, that he has paid our debt. Our, he has covered our sins. I told you that the wages of sin is death, but the free, I didn't read the whole verse, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. So that's the good news. The good news is that we are dead by reason of our trespasses and sins. The good news is that Jesus Christ bore that penalty himself on the tree on, at Calvary and has paid the penalty of our sins. So then what now? First of all, the Bible says to repent, to turn and walk the other, to, to turn from what you are doing and turn to Christ and then lean 100%, lean 100% on him. If God, if God is convicting you right now, if you're saying, man, you know what, that, that describes me. That is not my eloquent speech. That is God's spirit convicting you and I am begging you. Turn from your old ways. Turn to Christ. Lean upon him. His work is sufficient to cover. I don't care what you've done, how bad you've been, how good you think you've been. Lean 100%. Your entire weight, all of your weight, all of that sinful weight, fall upon Christ. You will be forgiven of your sins. So this is the gospel. And the gospel... um, is universal. It is not cultural. And it does something. The gospel actually saves people from their sins. And it increases. And then Paul ends up talking about the grace of God in truth. The gospel is not only true, but it is good. It is the message of grace. God gives us, and the message of grace is this. Grace is simply that God gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us heaven, forgiveness of sins, peace, gives us all of these things. What did you, for what, what makes me so worthy of such things? None of God's benefits are deserved. They are grace. Perhaps when Paul talks about the grace and truth in this passage, perhaps there's a false understanding of grace uh, promoted by the false teachers that Paul is countering. Um, Perhaps 
It is a grace that is in need of something. Like do everything you can do and then whatever you fall short in, grace takes over. Or be as good as you can be and then grace will make up the rest. No, grace is at all of it. The truth is that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In the book of Jonah, we read, salvation is of the Lord. So we thank God when we pray for you because we heard about your faith in Christ, the love that you have for all the saints and because of the hope that is laid up for for you in heaven. Of this um, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you and indeed in the whole world. It's bearing fruit and it's increasing as it does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras. And so... Here we see that the Colossians learned of this grace through a man by the name of Epaphras. He is likely the one who planted the church or or perhaps and or the pastor of the church in Colossae. And Paul and Timothy um, learned of the salvation that had come to the Colossians through this individual by the name of Epaphras. I guess my point here is that Um, somebody has to talk about the gospel. Somebody needs to share the gospel. Paul and Timothy, uh, Colossae, did not become Christian. They were not saved because Paul and Timothy happened to exist or happened to visit nearby. No, somebody went to them and shared the gospel with them. Maybe the passage of text that we should um, give consideration to is in Romans 10, verses 14 through 17, a well-known passage of text, but worth reading here. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on on whom I will have mercy. Am I reading the right one? And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, this isn't what I wanted. Oh, that's in verse 9, chapter 9. That's a good verse too. So write that one down. But the verse I wanted, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Epaphras had beautiful feet. He is a fellow servant and a faithful minister. And I love how Paul concludes this. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. That is love perhaps stimulated by the Holy Spirit. Perhaps it is love that is evidence that the Spirit of God exists, is, is, is dwelling in their lives. Epaphras told you of Jesus He told us of your reception of Jesus and because of that, we give thanks. I'll conclude here. 
Paul expresses thanks because the gospel has impacted the Colossian church, or the Col- has impacted the city of Colossae. Paul expresses thanks because he has heard that the gospel has impacted the city of Colossae. The gospel arrived because of the faithfulness of Epaphras. In church, I look forward to expressing thankfulness this year from hearing of your faithfulness in sharing the gospel and witnessing its life-altering effects. Our dear God 